God's Word Community Church welcomes you to six weeks of Easter, the journey to the cross and beyond, recorded in detail by the Apostle John in his Gospel. Jesus, the Messiah, brings you something found in no other religion in the world, real evidence of life after death, facts of the real God's work in space and time to give you real hope and a future. Join us through the death and the resurrection written by someone who is there. Rejoice for he is alive. I appreciate the opportunity that I've enjoyed this morning to worship with you. My spirit already feels fed from having been with you and experiencing it with you, and I'm grateful for that. This sermon is one that closes the Gospel of John in this Easter season. We call this series Six Weeks of Easter. I think we're going to be at seven or eight weeks by the time we're done. Uh, Next week, it is my intention to finish off the series by bringing in some additional thoughts following the resurrection from Luke and from Matthew. This final chapter in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, has a lesson in it for you and me that I hope will be as of deep encouragement to you as it is to me. I have called this lesson from John 21, I have called it the God who chases us. As I make that expression, I'm actually thinking of the words of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was probably the most important popular theologian of the 20th century. And by popular theologian, I meant somebody who wrote about God, but not primarily to the colleges and universities of the world. He wrote theology, teaching about God to the people, the common people of his land and all lands that would read him. He actually gave essays over British radio to help people understand what classic Christianity was. One of the things that's so interesting to me about C.S. Lewis is that earlier in his life, he really considered all of the miracles, the virgin birth, the resurrection, he considered all of that to be mythology. And God continued to work on his life and work on his life. God put some amazing people in his life. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, was one of C.S. Lewis's best friends. G.K. Chesterton, who is a man who takes my breath away every time I hear a quote from him, was in that same group of teachers. And another man named Dyson, whom I don't know anything about yet. But these guys would actually walk around the Cambridge University campus in the wee hours of the morning talking about things. And one of the things that C.S. Lewis experienced was that he felt like God was chasing him. 
And by the time 15 or so years had passed, he came to the conclusion that everything that was written in the scriptures about Jesus was true. And he became one of the great spokesmen for Christian faith in the Western world. He described God as the hound of heaven, the God that chased him, that for no reason that he could fully understand that God was after him. Somebody actually had asked C.S. Lewis how he would go about pursuing God, and C.S. Lewis said, I can't tell you, I've never had that experience. God pursued me. I want you to see that in this chapter that God does pursue us, and this chapter focuses on no less a figure than the Apostle Peter himself. Jesus' resurrection began one of the most interesting periods in human history, I think. According to Luke in Acts 1-3, Jesus appeared to his disciples off and on for a period of 40 days before he returned to heaven. That's more than a month. Now, by the time we get to chapter 21, Jesus has appeared to his gathered disciples twice, both of them in the room where they were gathered together behind a locked door. The third time that the disciples see him is recorded by John and John only in chapter 21. We read here after this, that is after these two appearances, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, if you wonder where the Sea of Tiberias is, you won't be alone. Tiberias is, of course, the name of the Caesar who is Caesar at that time. What John is referring to here as the Sea of Tiberias is what you and I know as the Sea of Galilee. Of course, Tiberius being Caesar, lots of things got named after him, which had other names before him. The uh, early name of the Sea of Galilee was actually Kinnereth, which means shaped like a harp. That was the oldest name for that sea that I know of. But then it became more widely known as the Sea of Galilee, as it is now known today. Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by that sea where so much of his teaching occurred. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, let me remind you that Simon's given name is Simon. Peter is actually the nickname that Jesus gave him that you and I actually probably think of most often. Thomas, who is called the twin. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. You remember Nathaniel at the beginning of this book was the one who said, Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth when he found out where Jesus was from? The sons of Zebedee. Zebedee is the dad who owns the fishing business up here. His sons are James and John. Of course, two of the most famous disciples. And two others of his disciples were together. Now, of course, as you could imagine, with John not saying who the other two were, lots of people have tried to figure it out. My favorite guess is, is that we're talking once again about Philip and Andrew, who were originally with the fishermen disciples in the beginning of this very book. Now, Simon Peter said to them, 
I am going fishing. Now, the way Simon says this is interesting to me. In English, you might not notice anything interesting. But in the original language, in the Greek, he uses the verb hupago, which is not a really normal word for I am going from here to there. Hupago is actually a word that you normally use when you're going to a permanent destination. If I were going to say, friends, I'm moving to North Dakota, I would use Hupago because it means I'm headed there, but it's not just a vacation. I'm not coming back. When Peter says here that Hupago fishing, what he's saying is, and soak on this a second, he's saying, I'm going back to fishing. Can you imagine? He knows Jesus has been raised from the dead. Why would he decide to return to fishing? I believe it's because he denied his Savior three times. On that night, when Jesus was taken in the sea of, excuse me, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had warned him to pray, which he didn't do. He had slept instead. He had warned him that Satan was looking to sift him like wheat, even with such a scary warning from the Son of God. Peter still didn't take warning. And then when the moment came, Peter, who said, if I had to die, if I have to die, I'll die for you. He, in fact, not only didn't die for Jesus, he denied him. And I think it's interesting that even though Jesus is risen from the dead, Peter's hope has died. He has given up on himself. He says to the other disciples, I'm going back to fishing. And they say, we will go with you. But the word they use is a much more common word in the New Testament. It's the normal word for I'm going from here to there. It's erkomai. If I were going to say, I am going to the convenience store, I will say, erkomai convenience store, which means basically I'm going there and you will see me again shortly. So Peter says one thing. The disciples say, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, when you have a whole bunch of professional fishermen in a properly equipped boat with nets in a sea that you know has fish in it, and then they catch nothing, it's a bad night for those fishermen. And there has been a night like this before. I don't know if you remember, but way, way back, more than three years ago, Three years before this night, Peter had a night like this one. Jesus had taught by the side of the water, standing in the front of Peter's boat. Peter had been out fishing all night long and had caught nothing. You ever worked night shift? Have you ever worked graveyard? You know what it's like when you have a bad graveyard shift? I know that when I've worked bad graveyard shifts, usually by the time the shift is almost over, my language is not as clean as it ought to be. I'm usually not thinking very upbeat thoughts. By that time, I usually hate most human beings. And Peter has had that kind of night, and he's in the process of trying to put his nets away in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus says, 
Say, Pete, I've got an idea. Let's go fishing. And Peter has already spent the whole night fishing and hasn't caught a thing. And he says to Jesus, Master, we have worked hard all night long. But because you say so, we'll go out to fish. I'm sure at that time Peter is saying to himself, He's a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. And there are no fish in this sea. But because you say so. So once again, this crew has been out there at night and nothing has gotten into the nets. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. I like the way John says this. It doesn't say the disciples saw Jesus walk to the shore. They saw him walk onto the beach. They look out from the boat, which is about 300 feet from shore, we find out, about 100 yards. They look up, and there Jesus is standing on the beach. And they never see him get there, which really doesn't surprise us at this point because he's already appeared twice behind a locked door. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, and Jesus said to them, Children! That's an interesting greeting, isn't it? Children! These are grown men out here unsuccessfully fishing. Children! Do you have any fish? Jesus uses a word here for fish, which I have to admit cracks me up. It only occurs once in the whole New Testament right here. And it's a word that means the kind of stuff you eat before you eat. And what I mean is appetizers, Um, a little side dish. Um, You can use it even for relish. Just something you put on it. So it sounds to me like a tease almost. So do you guys have anything? Have you, have you managed to catch any relish? Have you caught an appetizer? You know, he's not asking, do you have dinner? He's asking, do you have anything little that you could eat next to dinner? They don't even have that. And they answered him, no. And we thank you so very much for rubbing it in. I added that last part. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. This is exactly what happened in Luke chapter 5 over three years before. Now, why a school of fish would care about the width of a boat, you know, go on the right side, not the left, Why a school of fish would care about that few feet, I have no idea. But what I do know is that when God gives us a commandment, this is how I want you to move forward. What we need to do is to do it the way God said. He didn't tell Naaman to wash himself in the river of his choice. He told him to wash himself in the river Jordan and his leprosy-covered skin would become like that of a newborn baby. And so he tells the disciples, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And this is exactly like it happened in Luke 5. So they cast it. 
and now they can't even pull the nets back. Every fish in the Sea of Galilee says, look, nets, and they charge and they hit the nets, and the nets get so full from the quantity of fish that they can't even haul it in. The disciple whom Jesus loved, and this is John referring to himself again, says to Peter, Pete, imagine them tugging on the nets, trying to hold on to them, trying to haul them in, and they can't. Pete, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. Now, what it literally means here is that he kind of tied his outer garment around himself. These guys are set for work, which means that Peter is basically standing in this boat in his boxers. He's getting ready to have a conversation with this person on shore, and he decides he doesn't want to have that conversation in his boxers. So he takes his outer garment, ties it around himself, so when he dives into the water and gets up on the other side, he can put it on. That's all that's going on here. For he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. That's the Simon Peter that we know, isn't it? The Simon Peter who will, Jesus? Okay, and then overboard he goes, splash. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. Notice they couldn't even pull the net in. For they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. The original language here says about 200 cubits. A cubit is about a foot and a half. So 200 times a foot and a half is 300 feet. So for a total of about 100 yards. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Jesus is apparently faster at starting a charcoal fire than I am. With a fish laid out on it, even though they hadn't brought their fish in yet, somehow Jesus has some. With fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring of some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, that's a good catch. 153 big fish. You know, fishermen remember almost every really good day they've ever had fishing and the biggest fish that they've ever caught. I believe the reason it says 153 here is because that's how many fish there were. And Peter and the rest of the guys were so excited. You would not believe through history how many things people have tried to turn this 153 fish into. They've tried to turn this number into a symbol a zillion different ways. I think what it means here is that's how many fish were in the net. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Check it out. A load so heavy that they could hardly pull the net in. But God added no trouble to it. They pulled in an intact net. So Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. That's one of my favorite sentences in the English language, by the way. Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now I want you to notice in verse 15, the next section of this chapter says, when they had finished breakfast. 
when I noticed that verse, it caused me to think, wow, I wonder what it was like sitting around that fire with Jesus. They're all hungry. They've all been working all night long. At least the disciples had been. And so this breakfast, this hot fish and bread, I'm sure was a very welcome treat for them. But you know what? There's a conversation that still hasn't happened yet, isn't there? The last time Peter and Jesus have ever spoken face to face was just before Peter had denied him. You know what it's like, don't you? When something bad has happened between you and somebody else and there is a conversation that needs to happen and it hasn't happened yet, that's what that breakfast was like. That was that breakfast. So I wonder what it was like to have Peter and Jesus and the other six disciples sitting around that fire of fish and bread and that conversation has not yet transpired. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus breaks open the conversation. Jesus breaks open the confrontation between him and Simon. He said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? This is when I remember what what Peter's given name was. Peter is a Greek word meaning a stone that is movable. It's It's a small enough stone I can hold it in my hand. That's what the word Peter means. When you look in the Gospel of Mark and other places where you'll see the name in Aramaic, you'll see the name Cephas, which is Jesus' own native language, means the same thing as, as Peter. You call it pebbles or rock or something like that. His given name is Simon. His last name is Johnson because he's the son of John. The old translation here says Bar-Jonah, which means the son of John. I heard one preacher say that means we could nickname Simon Peter Rocky Johnson, which I think is fun. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, none of us knows exactly what he's talking about. Do you love me more than these other six disciples love me? That could be the question. But one other really important possibility, especially since Peter has said today, Hupago fishing, I'm going back to fishing. Jesus could be pointing at the boat, the nets, the heap of fish. Peter, do you love me more than all these? All of these parts of your life, your career, your history. Do you really want to go back to fishing? Or do you love me more than these things? And Peter says to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Now, there's an important difference in the word love here that you can't see in English. Because in English, we have one simple word for love, and we throw everything in the world into it. If I say I love my mom, I love pizza, I love tacos, I love my wife, I love playing games, I love good music, we use the same word for all of those loves. And 
we can all see that our country is pretty confused about the nature of love. The Greeks had at least five different words for love. And two of them are going back and forth here. In the original language, Jesus uses the verb form of the word agape. Some of you have heard this word, agape. Agape is a noun for love, which Jesus turns into a word which means a selfless kind of love. A love where you love on purpose, whether the object is lovable or not. In John 3.16, when it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that love is agape. It is a love that is not earned, but is given freely. So, Jesus says to him, Agape me? Do you have agape for me? Peter answers, Yes, Lord, you know that phileo say, I love you with the kind of love that friends share. Now, the thing that's curious about this is, is Peter stepping it up or is he stepping it down? Is, is the direction whether Jesus saying, do you have a selfless sacrificial love for me? And Peter, after having betrayed his Lord, is now not willing to say that far. I can't claim that kind of sacrifice anymore. You know that I am your friend, basically. Or is Peter, as he usually does, stepping it up, where he says, not only do I have selfless love for you, but I love being with you. I respect you, and you're my friend. So is he stepping it up? Hard to know. Some commentators don't believe that the difference in the two kinds of love is meaningful at all. Some of them think it's just a style difference that the writer is using but it is interesting to watch it happen yes lord you know that i have phileo for you and jesus says to him feed my lambs what have we heard jesus say if you love me you will obey my commandments you will keep my word it's like jesus is saying if you love me then feed my lambs this is what shepherds are supposed to do we're not herding cattle. We are feeding and protecting sheep. There's a huge difference. We care how the sheep are grown. We care what kind of food they have. We care where they are. And is their situation the kind of situation that will make things better or worse? And then he said to them a second time, Simon, son of John, do you have agape for me? Do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. So the second time, the same exact thing happens that happened the first time. Jesus asks Peter if he has agape. Peter says he has phileo. One way or the other, Peter is either bumping it up or bumping it down, so we may think. And then Jesus gives him the command, tend my sheep, do my work, do what I've called you to do. And then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this third time, do you know what Jesus does? He comes to the word that Peter has been using. And this is one of the things I love about God. Over and over again, Old Testament and New Testament, God starts with us where we are. 
Peter has now said twice, phileo say. I love you, using the phileo word. The third time Jesus asks the question, he doesn't use agape. He uses the phileo word that Peter has been using. And I don't want to force too much into this, but I wonder, is Jesus saying, are you really my friend? Do you really love me in this way that you're saying to me? And I want you to notice Peter's reaction. In verse 17, it says, he was grieved because he said to him the third time. And see, the question I have raised to you today, and you're going to just have to pray and think about this, what you think this means. In English, when you read this, it's like Peter is grieved just because Jesus has asked him the question three times. Why do you keep asking me this? You know that I love you. But is it possible that what grieved Peter was that Jesus challenged the very kind of love that Peter had testified to, which is going to be a wounded place for Peter? He had just claimed he would die for his Lord, and then he denied him three times. And so this is a wounded place for Peter. Could be that Jesus is actually calling him to be truthful about this claim that he's making. Peter was grieved, and he says to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And he says phileo again. And Jesus then says to him, feed my sheep. And I tell you at this moment, when I think about the various people that could be listening to God's Word Community Church sermons, I really want pastors all over the country to hear this message because we know of pastors that have dramatically gotten up on stage and told their people, it's not my job to feed you. I wonder in my heart of hearts what they then think their job is. Because when Jesus called Philip back, I mean called Peter here back to account, the job that he reminded Peter was his was the feeding and tending of his sheep. And friends, that's the job he's given church leaders, and it's also the job he's given to every single one of us because we're all called as priests. We are all called into the ministry of discipling others to disciple others. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. If you want to show me that you love me, then feed them. And that's what he would say to you and me too. I want you to notice that even though Peter has withdrawn himself, he was getting ready to go back to fishing, it was Jesus that took the initiative to chase after Peter, to get to Peter face to face, to get in his face and say, Peter, is this really where you want to take your life? Is this really where you want to go? If you love me, be my sheep. I didn't turn you into a fisher of men so that you could go back permanently and become a fisher of fish. That's not why I called you. Feed my sheep. And then in verse 18, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you 
and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. We have from church tradition that goes all the way back to the third century after the resurrection or after the birth of Jesus, all the way back to the third century, we have it that Peter was actually crucified eventually for his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, another scholar writing a hundred years after the first one, now in the fourth century, says that Peter actually refused to be crucified the way Jesus was in his old age and asked to be instead crucified upside down so that he would not be crucified, would not die on a cross the same way the Lord did. But John here and other scholars reading this text have drawn the conclusion that Jesus is referring very directly to Peter's eventual martyrdom. That yes, Peter will come back. He will feed Jesus' sheep. He will be faithful. And he will be faithful ultimately unto death. We understand that both Peter and Paul were killed for their faith in 64 AD, which is 35 years from this conversation. Peter is very likely in his mid to late 60s by the time this happens, but he gives his life. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, what he says to you, what he says to me, what he said to Peter on that very first day, follow me. Follow me. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Peter, being Peter, in that moment turns and sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Peter turns and looks at John. I don't know whether there's a rivalry here or a competitive spirit or what it was. John goes on to describe himself as the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw them, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Why are you asking about him? All you parents who have had more than one child have sometimes said, I'm not talking to you about your brother. (laughs) I'm talking to you about you. (laughs) And that's what Jesus is doing with Peter. There is, of course, a legend that grew up out of this, that John would actually live eternally until the return of Jesus Christ, still wandering this earth. You know, for all we know, he could be in a 7-Eleven at Glen Burnie somewhere. But John is very clear that, um, notice verse 23 So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. But Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So John is doing what he can to get control of this rumor right here. It is interesting that of all 12 disciples, John is the only one that was not killed. He suffered terribly. And he was at time banished but he was not martyred for his faith as were the others. And then we read in verse 24, this is the disciple, this one that was brought up in this conversation and who, by the way, is writing this book. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, 
I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. With that powerful verse that the world does not have enough room to talk about all that Jesus did, we come to the very last verse of the Gospel of John. And let me share with you kind of the big question I believe follows on this chapter. There are important things for us to learn about our work with God from the way that Jesus spoke to Peter. First of all, Peter had given up on himself after denying Jesus. It appears that he assumed God would have no more use for his ministry. But Jesus chased him, confronted him, told him what to do, and called him back into ministry. When we expect God to quit on us, instead he chases us with his love and compassion. C.S. Lewis said he could not give advice on pursuing God, having never had that experience. Quote, it was the other way around. He was the hunter, or so it seemed to me, and I was the deer. If one were to turn and face the terrible hounds of heaven, they would be revealed not as vicious destroyers, but bringers of life ready to lead the soul back home. God is chasing you. Turn and face him and receive his call. If you have fallen, he will call you back into his service. Today, Jesus is saying to you, as he said to Peter in the beginning and in the end, follow me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise of eternal life that you have given to us in your service. We thank you that your connection to us is not as shallow as our connection to you or even to ourselves, but that even when we give up on ourselves, you will pursue us to call us back into faithfulness. Thank you for the power of your resurrection and the power of your transformation in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.